This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think when most people think about the relationship between technology and humanity, they sort of think that humans really are the driving force uh, in that relationship, Mm. that uh, humans are influencing technology, and it's sort of like, you know, they're driving a car and they're determining where it goes. Um, Mm. But I think the influence actually goes both ways, that uh, humanity influences technology and technology influences humanity. And I really like to focus on that second direction where technology is influencing humanity. So years ago, I wrote a piece about how cars created the megachurch and really Mm. argued that um, because of the car culture that emerged in the mid-20th century, it really created this space where people could travel a great distance to go to church. And, you know, suddenly churches had to expand their parking lots and now parking lots are a bigger footprint than the actual building and uh, the Mm. options that people have in sort of traveling to a church means that they have you know 20 times as many options as to where they go to church and they suddenly become church shoppers and they're shopping around for churches Um, Whereas, you know, prior to the car, they had to kind of walk to church or ride a horse and their options were much more limited. And so they weren't really church shopping. And so that influence, you know, they're driving the car, but the car is also determining what their options look like. And so I think as Mm. we think about the ways um, that humanity and technology interact, we have to recognize um, that technology is shaping our experience as much as anything. And I think people uh, sort of intuit that, but the sort of common sense idea is that we're really in the driver's seat and we're in the driver's seat, but um, it's it's shaping the way that we look at the world and the way that our environment um, forms around us. Yeah, I think that reminds me of Sherry Turkle's line, uh, our tools shape us. Yeah. So, you know, a, a hammer gives you a hammer-shaped forearm in that way. So Yeah, and, um, and to you, everything looks like a nail. You're looking for more ways right. to use this hammer. Um, you're looking for right. more ways to use this car. Can I use this in a drive-through? Um, and so we start to form our world around the tools that we have available to us. Yeah, I just saw a, an article about... Um, a mega church. I think it was in Minneapolis that the the city or the county was would not approve the plans for their new campus because of parking. Oh, the, wow. the parking lots were so large, wow. right? And that was it was like a environmental issue. Right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. To the point. Um, I don't think most people, when I said technology, thought you were going to whip out a car <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you know if you stop and think about it, yes, cars have tech. We we would say, or most people would think, cars have technology in them, but you you, you just flat out equated a car to technology so what else counts as technology oh man uh a lot of things i would say if you want to go you know back into history 
I think fire counts as technology. It's cooking our food and it's it, in some ways becoming an external stomach, um, enabling us to digest mm. food in ways oh. and break down that food um, for us kind of prior to our consuming it. Um, I think you could argue that uh, language is a kind of technology. Um, it's uh, certainly shaping the ways that we understand ourselves, the ways that we see the world, the ways that we frame our experiences. Um, and, you know, if you want to go back into Genesis, those fig leaves that Adam and Eve put on uh, could be considered technology. And, you know, the beautiful story there is that um, in their sort of attempt to cover themselves in their shame and their sin, uh, you know, the first upgrade in technology comes from God himself. You know, he gives them mm. uh, leather coverings, uh, but it comes at a cost. Mm. It comes at the cost of uh, the lives of animals. And so, you know, even in that, we sort of see the ways that um, our technology um, certainly can serve us. And I think, you know, God sees technology as something that can be part of his creation. Um but it does come at the cost of that creation in different ways. So, uh, you know, I would go that I would go that far back in thinking, how do I define technology? But yeah, um, mm -hmm. it's a very broad term. Of course, uh, Jesus yeah, and, was called a tecton. You know, I've heard people right. say he was the techie of his day. I don't know if I would go that far, but right. uh, I sort of get that. Tecton idea. meaning builder, yeah. which I think today we would actually not call him a carpenter, but a stonemason, I mm. think would be okay. the term we would use for oh, Jesus today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that carpenter, and then of course that fires up the American imagination. We have a building table. Or what's that meme I saw the other day was... Um, Hey, did you hear that guy who built our table got crucified by the Romans? Uh, so <laughs> oh, that, that kind of idea that that he was just this common – which maybe maybe he was. And there's probably reasons from the, the Acts of Thomas to think that that's what's being descript, mm, described. But that but the hammer is the technology. The the pencil is a – I mean there's a famous essay. This is a pencil right. which talks about you know the, the economics of the technology and the, the globalism of the technology. Yes. Um, a notepad then is a technology. It remind me the the fire as external stomach. I'd never heard that before, oh. but I love that. Uh, a notepad is external mind. I mean, there's a yeah. whole philosophy of mind that says you, you kind of outsource your Absolutely. memory to the notepad. As long as you know where the notepad is, <laughs> then that it, it in some ways becomes part of your mind or your mental yeah. activity. And I think that's why the smartphone has become so central to our lives is that it is on a, in a lot of ways um, both that notepad but also that sort of external self in in kind of representing our identity to ourselves both through the social media platforms that we create and the ways that we present ourselves uh but then also just the systems that are on the device to help us manage our mm -hmm. lives whether it's a calendar or um you know a list app for groceries or a packing list or whatever it is you know all those things we're kind of outsourcing and so it becomes but and then also our relationships you know it um, hmm. informs we're so tied to it because it represents connection to meaningful relationships and you know hmm. we we often denigrate our sort of addiction to our smartphones and I think there's some relevance or validity to that but I think we also need to recognize that there are ways that we're using it um, and we need to kind of recognize what we're using it for um, are we using it to connect with others in meaningful ways I think um, 
that's a valid way to do it. And, hmm. um, you know, not as a replacement for those relationships in person, but uh, as a supplement, sure. And so, yeah, it represents both our identity and our connections to others. Um, and that's, you know, in, in large part why it is so uh, important to us. Do you remember when um, Boston Dynamics, like they had the secret thing that eventually got revealed as the Segway? It was yeah. this big secret for yeah. like a couple of years. Like it's, you know, I think Steve Jobs got to go see it before it was revealed, and he said they're gonna, you know, it's gonna change the architecture <laughs> of cities and yeah. all this stuff. And I always think it. And then it came out, and you're like, mm. oh well, that's cool, but right. um, I don't know about changing the architecture of cities. Uh, do you think the, you know, if you if you were to pick a technology that has actually changed the way our world works is it the smartphone that i mean just like the way trucks drive the way yeah the way we navigate our space the way we think about ourselves um yeah i think there's a few uh technologies like that certainly the printing press i think the car and i think the smartphone would all kind of fall in the same um and the iron plow don't forget the iron plow yes. that was a game changer <laughs> probably one of the biggest technology shifts in human history yeah absolutely um, and yeah, I think that would be a, a fantastic book to write, uh, kind of what those key moments were. Mm. Um, but yeah, in the past 500 years, those are the ones that I would point to. Um, so you, you've done this, you know, for a book I did on ritual, I, I read a bunch of the research on the smartphone use and, and the huh. apps on the smartphone use, and yeah. it was pretty universally negative. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to find somebody who was like, yeah, this is great. Sure. We should keep doing it unre mm. unreservedly. Mm. Um, the, but I, 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 and I kind of took that on and was very worried about it and kind of harped on my students about it for years and years. And um, what I found, though, is I was worried about the millennials who were like uncritically imbibing in their phone. Yeah. Um, are you as worried about it still or do you think like, like with a lot of things, the initial behavior tapers and becomes more reasonable over time. Man, I see my 17-year-old nephew, who's Gen Z, I see him integrate the phone into his experience. Um, maybe, maybe in healthier ways, but I mean, there are certainly times where, you know, he has to be told to get get off his phone and interact with people at the table. Um, right. And, uh, you know, mostly for the most part, he puts it away at, at any sort of dinner table. But um, I, I would say I, I distinguish between supplement and replacement. So mm. if it's replacing um, our interactions with others, if it's, you know, replacing our, uh, even ability to do creative thinking or um, something like that, I think that's problematic. Um, but as a supplement um, that's, you know, enabling us to connect with others um, and, you know, in some ways extending our creativity, for example, I think it can be 
integrated in semi-healthy ways. Um, and I, but yeah. I think it's always going to be a bit of a tension there. Yeah. I, at one point, uh, our kids are all in their 20. We have one 17 year old left. Yeah. The rest of them are in their twenties. Um, and watching them go through this, we actually had to make a distinction cause we just had kind of screen time limits, um, uh-huh. on everything. And, and at some point I'm like, well, my son actually likes to make music on uh, FL Studios or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's creating something, not merely playing a video game and consuming or checking right. out. So we kind of separated screen time into productive spring, spring, sorry, screen time in, instead of um, reductive. I don't know what our other one was. Consumption, consumption of yeah. screen time. Yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think creative versus consumptive is a great uh, kind of boundary line for thinking about how am I – um, engaging with this. I know even in the past, you know, a couple years for myself, I've sought ways to, um, spend more time in creative activities versus consumptive ones. And so I think, you know, parents who are thinking about that or people who are thinking about it for themselves, you know, if you can think about what am I doing here? Um, and how is that, uh, you know, what do I want to be doing with my time? Um, and then I think, hmm. you know, for me, uh, I do have screen time limits for a couple apps on my phone, but I realized, you know, the 90% of the apps I have, I don't feel compelled to, um, I don't feel addicted to. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, the, the, the apps that I feel that I need limits on are either my social apps or news apps. Um, Mm -hmm. that, that's just what it is for me. And I think, you know, it might be different for other people, but that was helpful. You know, I, I don't, my notes app, I don't feel addicted to my notes app. I'm not going to spend hours in my notes app. Your bill paying app. Yeah, exactly. It's just not going (laughs) to happen. And so I don't need screen time limits on those. It's really, you know, drilling down a little bit and nuancing what types of apps am I really needing to, um, you know, hold these lines on. Yeah, I remember uh, Adam Alter wrote a book. I don't remember the title of it, but it was about technology use. And um, he talked about hooks uh, and apps, huh. that there's these hooks that keep you in. Like yeah. a, a casino, you know, they don't put clocks on the walls. And I've noticed right. that, like, I have a block, uh, like a mindless block plane app that yeah. I sometimes use to clear my mind. But I noticed it doesn't have a um, – it doesn't let you see the clock. It doesn't yeah. let you see the time, right? Because yeah. uh, it doesn't want you to quit playing the game. Yeah. And so his antidote is like green space. Like get out and because uh, go out in the nature because nature is hook free. It doesn't have anything that's trying to addict you yeah. uh, to it, right? Yeah. It's just natural goodness or whatever, uh. and ecotherapy or whatever is <laughs> is the boundary of that. Um, but I, I, it makes me think like, okay, what are the wh- what is what I'm doing? How, how does it hook me in? Do, and he yeah. he gives this, uh, I think, a test of like, do you lose track of time? Yeah. Do you want to quit doing it, but you keep doing? It? I mean, it's all like yeah. Addic- yeah. addictive yeah. behaviors, yeah. right? Uh, um, but I do find that uh, my freshmen come in very much more kind of in in tune, like they. I used to make them do like a week during Leviticus where they had to have no screen time and then journal for wow. like 48 hours and, wow. and then try to go a whole week. And some of them did. And some of them would have near like <laughs> like addiction withdrawals. I mean, yeah. you, they would really, they would go through emotional roller coaster over it. time. And, um, but then after a while, you know, the last few years of doing that, 
students would say like, oh yeah, I often take Instagram off my phone for months at a time just, yeah. you know, cause I say it's getting to me or whatever. So yeah. they seem to be regulated a little bit better now. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I, and I have friends who do similar things and, you know, full disclosure and confession, my, uh, my addiction is TikTok, and it is one of those experiences oh, wow. where I, um, maybe want to get off it sooner than I do. Uh, but I do have, you know, limits on it. And so, you know, every, well, once I pass that, then I'm having to enter my, you know, passcode and, you know, add another 15 minutes and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it certainly made me, uh, step back and say, this is very consumptive. Um, where's the creativity in, um, my life that I can bring back in and, and spend more time doing that. Mm. Um, but you know, the TikTok certainly it, it's sort of a substitute for watching a movie or watching television. Right. So if you're, if you're streaming, you know, that's just as addictive in certain ways. Right. And so, um, you know, it's the Twitter of, of television shows, <laughs> right. the micro blogging, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it did. I did see that was one of the things I noticed with my own kids is when they started watching Vines and then TikToks, um, their sense of humor changed. Like, I feel like within a year, uh, people were thinking in like 60 second blocks of humor. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. like tell them a Norm McDonald three minute joke and they're out. You know, they can't <laughs> hang in for the punchline. So, um, yeah, so that was a, that was an interesting transformation. Mm. Um, okay, so. Uh, to let you know what's going, you might already know this, but to let you go, what's on, know what's going on the campus. Um, I'm switching to creativity because I just got an email inviting me to a session at the library to talk about using AI uh, as a creativity booster, right? Like yes. to generate ideas in a workshop. I'm working with a guy, uh, this Muslim scholar, who we were working on this grant proposal, and he said, "Hey, I want to give me some time. I'm going to go on AI. And I'm going to try to generate some ideas." And yeah, uh, I'd never heard of that before. I will tell you in the last year, I think it's generally true that most, many of us professors have switched to oral exams or in-class writing assignments okay. because we don't want to read a bunch of AI, basically. Yes, um, yes. I support that. And I use AI in class. Like uh, Sometimes a student will ask a question. I'll be like, well, let's ask the AI and see what it's – and sometimes I'm shocked by – you know, it mixes really good answers with just really bad trash, right, uh, and, you know, uh, side by side because it hallucinates and can't tell, tell the same. I had my first plagiarized, like clearly AI paper, which was tricky because I read it and I was like, there's no way this is an AI. And I put it in three AI checkers and it's like, yeah, 100%. And fortunately, the person fessed to it immediately and was oh. repentant and it all worked out fine. Um, but this, I think it's the, the boogeyman, uh, but I think it's mostly the boogeyman because of what you said earlier, that kind of hammer and nail, like I've got a hammer, now how, what can I do with this thing? Yeah. And we're not really sure what all you can do with AI at this point. Yeah. yeah. So um, what worries you about AI and what gives you hope about uh, the different visual and textual AI use? Mm. Maybe hope first because I feel yeah. like the worry one is probably longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I've, I'm using AI systems definitely for that uh, – brainstorming sort of get my 
creativity juices flowing a little bit. Um, over New Year's, friends and I uh, were celebrating New Year's and f- a- as sort of a party uh, game, we um, created a March Madness bracket of John Travolta movies um, to vote on which wow. movie was most John Travolta. And I was trying to come up with a title for this event. And so I, you know, punched it in chat GPT and it, it, you know, came out with a couple different ideas based on some of his movies. And I didn't take any of them, but it got me, hmm. you know, down the path to, um, come up with the title, which was, uh, Pulp Fever Face-Off. So three of his movies, Pulp Fiction, Saturday Night Fever, and Face-Off. I forgot about that whole Face-Off movie. Yes, uh, probably probably best. But, you know, it gets gets those creative juices flowing, um, and, you know, that's what I came up with. Uh, So, yeah, the the creative opportunities there, um, and, you know, I think the opportunities then to use it for... Yeah, really getting started um, if you're like scoping out a project, um, trying to think what categories do I need to um, come up with um, to address in a paper. You know, if I'm going to talk about all the, you know, key elements in of this issue, you know, what do I need to address? And it can sort of give you a good outline to start with. But filling in that outline, I think, then needs to be on you. Um, and yeah. you can, you know, go and do the research in that. Um, I've used it for, uh, writing HTML and CSS. Um, you know, I, I don't really know those very well. I know right. just that, enough to be dangerous. That makes much more sense. Yeah. yeah. Coders are using a lot of AI to just yeah. write code very quickly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, it um, you know, it, it goes down that path for you. But the, the reality is um, all of those sparks of ideas are still coming from me. I'm still saying, you know, I want uh, titles for a March Madness bracket about John Travolta. And that's, you know, that, that seed of the idea is mine, you know. And then, you know, extrapolating it out is what the GPT systems are doing. And... So those are sort of the hopes, but it's also that that's the thing I think that I'm um, thinking about as a worry as well. Um, what is the value of my being able to brainstorm and think in lateral ways? Um, and what what's the value of that practice, that habit mm-hmm. of um, doing that work myself and thinking along, you know, different um trains of thought i think there's something real real and meaningful and valuable for us to develop a practice like that i think including for critical thinking because i think critical Mm -hmm. thinking requires us to in some ways be creative and to think about a issue from multiple angles multiple viewpoints and we have to do sort of lateral thinking to do that and it requires a kind of brainstorming and if i don't exercise that muscle uh that brainstorming muscle and i kind of outsource all of that to a a gpt system then 
I'm not going to have that muscle when I need it. And so that, yeah. you know, certainly has me concerned as well. And I don't know how to, you know, uh, untangle those issues. Yeah, and it certainly, uh, I think what you're saying undermines the, it's just another tool in the tool belt, which is right. true, but there's some danger of it. Uh, you know, if you can't, if, if you quit using the hammer because you're using the electric hammer, I mean, I, you know, or the, the <laughs> nail driver, I, yeah. that's the electric hammer. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've had carpenter friends who said this, like, you know, guys come on and they're so used to using nail drivers that they actually can't toenail anymore. They can't do the basic skills. Sure. Uh, so. Um, or, you know, I worry in the military, they use all, all rifles with optics now on them where it was, it used to be just cold steel sights that you had to be able to shoot. And then you can add optics on as you know them. Um, so maybe it's that training side that you teach students how to shoot with cold steel. And then you, you say, now you, now I can give you this tool. And the same way that, you know, I, I went to seminary. I think you went to seminary as well. I had some theological training a, a bit. And, uh, and they have these softwares like BibleWorks and um, right. Logos and Logos. stuff. Sure. And I just committed that I was not going to buy any of that software until after I finished seminary. Like I wanted okay. to do all the work and make sure that I understood it. And then I did. And this, like the year after I, I, I graduated from seminary, I bought BibleWorks and learned how to use all of its archaic techniques to look up things and to do uh, polyvalent searches and mm. – um, and then it went out of business, and now I have all this useless knowledge of that piece of so- that <laughs> boutique piece of software. But it's it's great. I still keep it on a, emula- a Microsoft em- emulator on my computer. Um, but that that issue of the atrophied muscle, like, yeah. in, it seems to me that we can kind of wring our hands and say, "Oh, we're worried about this," but unless we actually do some kind of like educational system that ensures that we that people have the basic skills, and then you hand them the advanced tools. I don't know how we're not going to slide off into the epitome of death, <laughs> to put it politely. <laughs> well, I, I think I think it's a worthwhile conversation um, in that sort of stack of knowledge to to ask like what, how should we build that stack of knowledge? You know that hmm. there's I think a term in education around the common core, which I think you know, might get at that a little bit. Um, the idea is that there needs to be a kind of a base of knowledge that we start with. Um, but yeah, the, the tools, AI systems being the most obvious these days is, you know, they're subsuming a lot of knowledge and supplying it as a service to an individual without, Mm -hmm. and that person doesn't need any sort of, um, underlying knowledge to use it. And I think it, it's a worthwhile question to ask and a conversation to have. Like, do we need, do we need to have a common, um, foundation of knowledge that, that we start from, uh, and, and I don't skills know as much as knowledge. Yeah. 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 Yes, absolutely. Maybe we should say uh, go back a little bit and say what is, you just said GPT a couple of times. I noticed mm-hmm. in your on your webpage you talk about Bible GPTs. Uh, yeah. What is a GPT? Yeah, uh, generative pre-trained transformer. So, 
what that means is um, I'll focus on the pre-trained. It's an AI system and AI systems are looking for patterns and based on the, those patterns they're making uh, they're labeling things. Um, and so if I show it a million pictures of cats, uh, it's going to look for patterns in the pictures um, in order to identify uh, the next picture that it doesn't have in its database. And so if I show it a million pictures of cats, it finds all the patterns that are relevant to, you know, all of these that are labeled cats. And then, you know, I show it a picture of a giraffe um, and I ask it, is this a cat or is this not a cat? It's going to compare it to the pattern it has um, and say, no, this is not a cat. And generative uh, means that it sort of turns that around and it takes all of its knowledge of what a cat pattern looks like and it reproduces what um, fits the pattern most obviously. Um, hmm. And so, you know, what it does with images, it's also doing with text. So it's really looking for the most common um, next word in a sentence. So, you know, if I say, um, oh, say, can you, most people are See. going to, yeah. you know, add the right next word if you're, if right. you live in the U.S. Um, and so uh, a GPT system knows that there's a pattern to the, that sequence of words, and it's going to fill in the blanks. And generative AI is just doing that kind of ad infinitum. And um, that's generally how it's working. Hmm. Uh, our simple question, are GPTs pre-human? Pre-human. Uh, like, could they, could they become uh, sentient beings? Yeah. At some point. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched Battlestar Galactica at one point. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, those AI systems are considered narrow AI as opposed to general AI. Um, and uh, beyond that is sort of uh, the Hollywood version, which is super, uh, super artificial intelligence. Um, hmm. GPT systems are sort of a narrow AI um, and whether and when we would get to general or super artificial intelligence uh, is TBD. Is it pre-human? I, I don't really think so. Um, I don't think it is conscious. I don't think it's self-aware. Um, however, I think um, you know, the definitions of what we mean by consciousness is still a philosophical black hole um, that has right. not been resolved. Um, how do we understand what consciousness is, is um, considered a hard problem in philosophy. Yeah. Um, is it, uh, is chat GPT, the text-based version, maybe even the visual versions like mid-journey, yeah. are they racist? Um they're biased um and so if uh yeah uh i'm trying to think of a good example for you um 
So, you know, in the U.S., uh, anyone who has a uh, driver's license has their photo in a national database. And um, so the facial recognition that's running on that database is available to the government. And... Mm. um, and then there's, you know, also databases from a history of policing over the last 50 years uh, and includes the ways that, you know, police arrest certain people uh, more than others. And, you know, they get fingerprinted mm. and identified. And all of that data is the data being used for uh, AI systems in criminal justice today. And so the policing practices and procedures that have been used over the last 50 years um, that in some cases are systemically racist um, are being used. And so when that data gets integrated into an AI system, that's then looking for um, this type of person who, you know, has this sort of criminal record. Um, it's going to manifest based on that, um, that set of data, what the most likely kind of person is. Um, and so it's going to be biased towards the, if, you know, if you have a system that says these are all people with a criminal record, um, show me the next type of person that's going to be, mm. have a criminal record. It's going to just like the cat, it's going to produce something that looks like a cat. Um, whether or not that is, a fair representation of the larger population. And so, hmm. um, yes, it is biased. Uh, you know, my understanding of racism is that there's, you know, more of a human intention there right. uh, or human perspective. Um, and so you could certainly argue that it's racist, but I would, I think it's more generic to call it bias. Right. Yeah. In some ways, it sounds like what you're describing is essentially AI, the the outputs of generative AI mm -hmm. are in some ways a mirror to the uh, the generative outputs of humans. So if, if a certain <laughs> class and race of people have written more and been yeah. more published and that's what AI is trained on, mm -hmm. then it's going to be – it's going to – reflect that the nature of what it was trained on in the same way that somebody who's raised in texas versus california versus the philippines is going to reflect the kind of the text and the traditions that they were uh, raised upon so th this again is sounding very human to me <laughs> yeah i think i think it is in ways a mirror and like a mirror the benefit is that it allows us to look at ourselves somewhat objectively and to say, we want to be a better person, or I want to do my hair differently. Um, you know, I want to look a little bit different. I want to dress better, you know. Uh, but the mirror is, you know, also a, an inverted image. Uh, we're seeing hmm. ourselves backwards to the way the, way the world sees us. Um, so there are ways that um, AI systems certainly reflect us, um, but we need to sort of uh, think through uh, what those things are, but it, it allows us that mm. opportunity to, to have a conversation an explicit conversation. Do we want to be, uh, the type of people that, um, 
arrest people for the you know based on the color of their skin no we don't we want to we want a different way of policing and we want to move towards that and and so that you know opens a door for that conversation to really happen I found with um, undergraduates, and it may be true more generally in the general population, but uh, with undergraduates, one of their difficulties, they always want to look up for papers. They want to look up sources online. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to use web pages. They want to use things that we wouldn't consider academic sources. Sure. And uh, I I just say, like, look, whatever your source is, it has to have a name and a credential behind it. You know, like to say, why is this person the right person to write on this topic? Like you on technology. There's a reason why we're talking to you, right? (laughs) Um, but I found that they have a great difficulty, like all information on their web browser is essentially of equal merit unless they personally disagree with it, Mm. but they don't have, it's, you know, it's kind of all whitewashed. It's like, yeah, I got it from the internet. Like, well, there is no the internet that produces anything. Um, it was a person who made that blog, who wrote that post, who wrote that article or whatever. But it seems to me with generative AIs, it actually tr- is true that you could say, well, yeah, the internet <laughs> said it really does a not fully anonymize uh, the source, and that in itself seems to create more proliferating difficulties for thinking about uh, the AI as a source rather than maybe a resource. Yes, I think that's uh, a fair concern and a fair point. Um, Yeah, it is. It is representing. Uh, I was going to say yes, it is representing the internet, but we have to understand that OpenAI, Anthropic, Google Bard, each of these systems, again, it's pre-trained. Um, so right. part of that pre pre-training means that. Um, when these GPT systems uh, produced an output, there was a group of people who said, this is a good output and that's a bad output. Do more of the oh, good yeah. output. And so part of the training uh, in the process was um, redefining what the target of a good output mm. is. And uh, there was a, a group of people, in the case of OpenAI, they actually employed people in Kenya um, at very low wages to review the outputs of the chat GPT and to Hmm. grade them and say, this is a good output. This is a bad output. Um, And so there is still a sort of human in the loop and a human, you could say prejudice or bias uh, for what a good output looks like and what a bad output looks like. And Hmm. so even as we might say, we can cite quote unquote the internet using a GPT system. The fact is that's a very um, filtered and uh, uh, specified way of um, representing what the internet, what all of the internet Hmm. would be saying. Uh, It sounds, I mean, to me, everything you're saying humanizes the AI. It's not the mystical void of the internet. It actually is a very human process from beginning to end. Yeah, for sure. Even if if I've heard correctly, I I think I've heard in several, you know, podcasts that people say there's actually no way to to trace back causal, you know, links between what you ask and what the generative AI gives. Like they can't go through the code and figure out what happened. And right. 
and that seems to be what scares a lot. I mean, there's this, the sign petition by this guy who was an early inventor of AI. He's like, this is dangerous. <laughs> is, is that what they're worried about is you, you can't causally trace how it came to the conclusions it came to? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, within the a GPT system, it's using math to do language. So it's hmm. saying, um, oh, say, can you, there's a 90% chance that the next word should be C. There's a 10% chance that it should be a different word. And hmm. therefore, we're going to go with the 90%. And it's doing this. Uh, it's doing that for every word. It's it's calculating a percentage likelihood for every word, and um, that's based on, you know, reading large amounts of the internet and correlating how often do these words go together, um, and that uh, that math model, that algorithm is. Uh, is so large. I mean, it's it, hmm. it's billions, if not trillions, of data points correlating words, corre- correlating phrases, um, correlating you know larger concepts together, and um, yeah, trace tracing out across those billions. Like you know, no human individual can you know evaluate or review that process hmm. yeah um i know i i said we're going to keep this shorter but everything you're saying is so fascinating uh <laughs> i do want to connect this to, to bible study because i know people who are working on bible software apps right now that where you're you know the lay person is reading yeah. a section of scripture and they can just click and say oh let ask ai to give me an interpretation of this passage yeah to me, that sounds like a horrible idea, <laughs> but I wonder how it sounds to you. you. You know more about it. So how does that idea sound to you? Yeah, the way I'm thinking about it right now, so we, you know, um, for a couple centuries, people have been really advocating for the historical grammatical method of interpretation. There are other methods, um, but that's a popular one. Um, I want to call an AI system, the statistical probabilistic method of interpretation. Hmm. Um, so instead of using a historical grammatical method, it's using a statistical method of interpretation. And I think seminarians, pastors, theologians, uh, biblical scholars need to critically wrestle with that question. Is a statistical hmm. method of interpretation a valid method of interpretation? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that is, for me, a helpful way to frame it. Hmm. Um, I think that analogy is really helpful. And I I don't know that it's even analogy. I think it's literally what it is. And I think we need to spend time critically evaluating, is a statistical method of interpretation a valid way to do it? And And maybe it is, or maybe it's just one among a set of ways that we interpret scripture. And it could be, again, a voice in the conversation, but it's not the only voice. Again, it's not a replacement for all these other modes of interpretation, but it is one mode of interpretation. Um, you know, hmm. I don't know. But I think the scholarly community has to uh, wrestle with that and sort of critically evaluate it. Yeah. And come, come again with some kind of educational 
program to to work this stuff in or out. Yeah. 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 Well, Adam, thank you very much for your wisdom and discernment. I'm glad there are people like you, smart people like you, working on this and helping us think through this. And um, we didn't even get to kind of a theological or biblical lens on this, but you've got, a, you've got all of that on your website, and you work out a lot of those issues right. uh, for Christians. So I very much appreciate your time and your wisdom. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture, For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 